This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Good evening. Today we have, we will be discussing the book Nobles, the Shining Host, the first of the books titled The Shining Host in Changeling the Dreaming. So, Puka, do you have any background for this book or anything? I don't know about background. I mean, I can tell you what it tells me on the first two pages which is that it came out, it says 1995, I think it was actually 96, early 96, doing some digging into the history of the book releases, written by Chris Howard, who went on Mm -hmm. to write many a thing for Changeling. I'm just looking at the special thanks, and some of them are quite amusing. But yeah, personally, I don't remember when I got this book. I mean, I have the physical copy. I do remember opening it. So I don't remember when or where, but I just remember the feeling. So... Mine has handwritten in pencil $6.95 and then some letter underneath it. A bargain. Yes. Veritable steel. And I don't know whose handwriting it is. Probably somebody who sold it somewhere. Yeah. Also, this is printed in Canada, like many of the books at this time. (laughs) I have this memory of like ripping open a FedEx package or something and pulling this out. Uh, No, this one I had, I think I may have acquired it from a roommate. I'm not sure. It's just been in my changing collection for a very long time nice so yes uh how's this book laid out or how's this book structured we've got lots of chapters for such a short book it clocks in around 120 pages i think yeah they stop numbering around 107 but then there's more pages but in there we have an introduction intro story seven chapters and an appendix which is quite dense for what is essentially a kith book? I don't know what that I want to actually call it a kith book, but we can get to that later. Yeah. I mean, if it was a kith book, I'd be annoyed about how much it had other kith in it. That being said, it is extremely dense compared to some of the kith books. Yeah. Just full of crunch, full of fluff, full of frosting. All three parts mm-hmm. of what makes role-playing materials worth reading, I think. Yes. So, the introduction. Yeah. I have a, I have a quote from like the first paragraph, I think. The dream lords are in their rightful place of power once more. I have thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, that sentence is a whole mood. Yeah, and I took this book as a certain kind of ironic tone, and dramatic irony, kind of like almost like it's all written in person by a she. And lots of sections of lots of parts of it are. Yeah, but I've also encountered a lot of players and STs that see it as more objective truth for how they interpret Changeling. Are are you saying you think that this book was written kind of with the sense, you know, you, the reader, and I, the writer, understand that the she are, by and large, really terrible and full of themselves, even though this book is written entirely in a voice that's like, oh, you know, we're just misunderstood, that kind of thing. Maybe not quite that far, but definitely in the this is meant to be the she perspective on the she. Okay. So, like, it's not directly stating anything about them being terrible. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's, this is an unreliable narrator, is how I took it. Mm, Okay, yeah. I like that. Several unreliable narrators, really, I think. Yes, but even the, like, omniscient third-person narrator is an unreliable narrator. (laughs) Yeah, they really liked the she when they were writing these books, so. Yeah. 
and that's not necessarily a bad way. Like, like we're talking comparing to Kith books. That is generally how the Kith books are written. It's true. I've never come across I can't remember any Kith books that's like, well, yeah, this Kith sucks. Yeah. Don't want to say it's quite propaganda for them, but yes, it is certainly biased in the favor of each one from whose perspective it is. There's a line also in the introduction where they say, talking about the she, something about even the lowest among them gives pause to even the most radical commoner anti-monarchist. At the same time, something unsullied and innocent about them touches even the most cynical human. I find this interesting because even though obviously there's the whole notion of the she kind of beguiling humans, and that's something we see encoded into a birthright with Autumn She and C20, unsullied and innocent isn't exactly two adjectives that I had thought about applying to the she. And I, I kind of see where they're drawing that thread from, but it's just a little jarring to kind of see that because I almost feel as though everything we read after that sort of dispels that description. I do think the sheet have like a second unwritten flaw of unrecognized privilege. Yes. (laughs) And that could be. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, except that maybe it's this, there's this vibe they give off. And the only thing that the only reason for it to exist is that it's part of their dreaming nature. Nothing that they actually do, nothing about their behavior actually upholds that that aspect yeah. of them. It's just encoded in their their essence. I, I think, yeah, one unlike a lot of people in power causing problems that you that I've encountered personally, I don't think any of the she have a punchable face. Well, they they're very pretty faces, so Yes, but it's like it's not a reflection on their actions, it's not a reflection on their morality or ethics or anything like that. But I do think it fits with the kith that, like, on some level, people are more inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt than they would someone Mm. else doing the same thing. Yeah. That's not problematic at all. I mean, (laughs) it's problematic, but I don't know if it's problematic from an out-of-game perspective. It's a... No. Here's how you can play problematic in your game and explicitly explore problematic. I don't don't know that everyone always takes that uh, approach. Anyway. Yes. Moving on. (laughs) Yes. Like I said, it depends if you read this as objective truth, then you get into bigger problems. I have to say, there's also one more line that I I dislike immediately after that, or a couple lines, which is, many commoners whisper that the nobility protects itself from the reality of the world by living in palaces of spun sugar in the dreaming. They laugh, knowing that the first strong rain will wash the intruders away. Perhaps this is true. I have literally no idea how to parse those three sentences. Is it literal? Is it metaphorical? Is it true? Is it false? I don't think I don't it's know. literal sugar. Well, it's dreaming sugar. I don't know. It's just a weird metaphor. I think it's the comment on banality or something washing it away. I, I think it's the dreaming? metaphorical. They're not intruders in the dreaming. So it just... Yeah, that's a bit confusing. And then perhaps this is true, but like it's just all very... I've had a bunch of those. Just think, I don't know if I wrote down any specifics, but there's a lot of sentences like that in this book where you read yeah. them and go, what? Yeah. But I, th- I guess that's the writing style. Yep. We get a bunch of lexicon, including, for the first time, the Tuatha Dé Danann and the Fomorians. Yes. I believe it's the first I... time, at least. Yes. They talked about Fomorians before. but Well, they, I mean, in the context of the Fomori, but here they're they're listed as possibly related to Fomori. So here they're, like, specific. But they different. had that. No, I think they even had that in the core book. Like, they said the Fomori might be Fomorians, but they seem a bit different or something. Ah, maybe. Okay. Not that they ever talked about what Fomorians are. They did get into more detail here what Fomorians are. 
Yes. And a couple others that come up later. I mean, here we have the Silver Path, the Morphine Oracles, and the Lost Ones. And then a few that, again, I don't think we ever really see again. So yes, we have that introduction. And then in Chris Howard style, we get a story. Mm -hmm. I enjoy Chris Howard's fiction. I don't know that it's always necessary for me to read, but it certainly creates mood and atmosphere. And I appreciate that. This story does get referenced in the book later. Briefly, I do yes. have one question about this story. So we've already read Freeholds and Hidden Glens, which talked about Boston. Yes. With the tyrannical Duke Timon, who was there since the Accordance War. And this talks about Duke Asterland, which is apparently impossibly more liked. At least it has to be more liked than Duke Timon. She, who was there since the Accordance War in the same place. Yes. Conflict. Yes. And there's other parts in this book that do reference Freeholds and Hidden Glens, but not that chapter, I guess. Yeah. Maybe the one from Freeholds and Hidden Glens was around in the Accordance War, but didn't become Duke until Osterlan vanished, which it says later was in 76 or something. Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Or he could just have been a Duke who lived there and wasn't actually the ruler. Yeah. But yeah, that's the other. There's I have questions about noble titles that this book didn't really address. But... <laughs> slightly, slightly. Like, you come back, you're a duke. Does that happen? Yeah. You don't have any lands, you just came back? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you have, like, Duke Dre, for example. I don't think he has any land. Mm -hmm. He's not He's not the duke of a... I don't know. Yeah. Well, we'll get to titles in a few chapters. In the meantime, how did you feel about this story? I liked it. I thought it was well signposted as a tale mm. that was not meant to be taken too literally in terms of actual sp super specific details. It reminded me a lot of Welsh mythology in the sense of kind of having the enumerated, here are all of the companions, here are all of the places they went to, here's the series of adventures they had, treasures they found, foes they met, etc. And it's that very mm -hmm. orderly, which you see kind of in a lot of the Arthurian stuff that followed as well, and maybe yeah. other traditions that are similar. Yeah, I can think of other mythology and folklore that is mm -hmm. similar. But especially stuff. sort of like, here's one representative from every kith, and here's one stop we make at each place in the dreaming. That kind of thing. Which, I mean, if you're going to do a dreaming story in your game, doing that isn't necessarily a wrong thing either. Yeah. And there's a lot of little bits that I believe sort of foreshadow other stuff from Dreams and Nightmares, Denizens of the Dreaming, and the later books we get. So we have these sort of spider monsters, which I suppose are meant to prefigure the Aslinthi Darkkin or something. Mm -hmm. That that one just felt kind of Tolkien to me. Yeah. And we have a, a hard answer that... The Arcadia Gateway and the Umbra is not actually a gateway to Arcadia, which I think Werewolf is also pretty clear about. Well, did they say in the story where the Arcadia Gateway goes? I don't believe so. They call it like a shadow. What does he say exactly? Oh, oh, that was what we were talking about. I thought it was a different, but they weren't in the Umbra. Well, it's the it's the Arcadia Gateway realm, hmm. which is supposed to, I think, connect the Umbra and the Dreaming. Oh, so maybe that you could get from that place to the umbra with the arcadia gateway okay so he says it is not the true arcadia beyond the great door but merely one of its shadows yes i was just a bit confused by that great door being the same great door as the arcadia gateway you're talking about in the umbra and werewolf i didn't realize that was the same door i think that's what it's meant because it's princess mariana mm, okay there's this picture of her turning into a snake and uncoiling astralon the art here by andrew kudelka I always find kind of like, I don't know if trippy 90s would be a way to describe it, but it seems to combine like little little bits of early computer generated stuff with like lens flares. There's a role, another role playing game from around this time called Immortal, which mm. 
borrows heavily from the world of darkness that's all full of like more that art style than that art style if that makes sense early digital art for a mainstream purpose i guess yeah digitally enhanced yeah there's one setting detail in this story that i think it was introduced here and it's been consistent throughout the run of Changeling, and I don't understand it. And maybe I'm being nitpicky. I don't know. Maybe I'm too much of a knocker. But, like, you have the shattering, right? And the mm-hmm. she were running back to Arcadia. And then the gates closed, and then the people were trapped in the autumn world, right? So there's mm-hmm. there's two types of fae. The ones who are in Arcadia, and the ones who are in the autumn world. And this book is the introduction to the third fae that are just hanging out in other places in the dreaming. Yes. And like, why didn't the fae just go do that? Well, because eventually I suppose they would fall into bedlam and dissolve into the dreaming or something. Yeah, but I mean, this queen's been there for a while, I think. And she's mad. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And they talk about that in, in future books. So I'm like, hmm. I mean, it's it's not like a impossible to resolve. It's just... Well, it, I think there it's are... It's never mentioned. Yeah. Th- so there, there are fae hanging out in the dreaming and living there. But they they also still can no longer go to Arcadia. So yeah. it's not like the dreaming, they're going to just be totally fine forever, necessarily. They're still yeah. dragons and things. And they won't, presumably they won't reincarnate if they get eaten by a dragon because they haven't undergone the changeling way or something. Oh, yeah. And they don't have the whole um, spring or something. Something. Yeah. Food for thought. The, I also This book also, I think this story might have the first description of dark glamour. They got a hold of, like, weird, dark glamour that, like, messed everything up. Anyway, Astralon is apparently this sort of watchword for nobility who behave well and are champions and such and vanished. Later in the book, they call him the Elvis of the Cathane because people are always like, I saw Astralon in the Dreaming. But I don't think we ever really hear much about him elsewhere in the line, so he's one of those tales. Yeah, that, that, I like that. I could, I could drop him in and people would be like, what? <laughs> so. You've never heard of Astralon? Mm-hmm. Yes, so the story, yeah, the story is he's going, he's uh, tricked by a, this book's really anti-Slua. Yeah, we'll get to that. I have comments on that later, so. The huge rivalry between the Slua and the She, but anyway, some Slua tells him to go on this, I don't know, this birthday party or something, everyone's giving him presents for some reason, and tells him he can, he's the one who's going to go find Arcadia, so he heads off, this is about his trip to the Dreaming, and then as far as he goes, and then he continues on with his men, and we don't know what happens to him after he vanishes forever or becomes elvis and then we get into the actual history Mm -hmm. well sort of actual it starts with the time of legends so titled the history of the vassal she whistle whistle oh i thought it was vassal the noble she okay that makes a little bit more sense i was like what (laughs) these are just the she that like worked her other nobles okay what does whistle mean noble or elevated oh okay it's like the traditional term for nobility in Irish. And this chapter is told by Professor Edgewick, who's like the tutor to Princess Lenore, the heir to the throne of Concordia. It's a pretty, pretty stuffy guy. Mm-hmm. I like piecing together these things, even though they're, every time you read, especially really far back, you get different stories, but that's fine. But mm-hmm. it's like, this one depicts the world as having been like locked in stasis, essentially. And then the Tuatha de Danann come from somewhere else in the glowing light and bring inspiration and make the world start moving something like that and from them humanity learned to dream Mm -hmm. and this book does pretty clearly i think set out that the tuatha are seen as sort of the progenitors of all of the changeling kiths and the she at least see themselves as the firstborn i think all of the kiths probably see themselves as the firstborn but there is this sort of general note 
All that is left of them are their children, us, the Fae, and first among them, the She. Mm -hmm. As well as the prodigals, because, you know, that's how changelings roll. Well, some of the prodigals. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Werewolves and, oh yeah, different take on vampires being the children of Lilith instead of the red caps. Which we'll get to later as well. So. Yeah, but I think that makes a little bit more sense. They do mention that, I think, here, though. They also mention this whole multiple histories in the te- and the hidden ones, aka the technocracy, isolating one history. And I just like that multiple histories. I've seen it in different Changeling and Mage and whatnot books, and I like using it. It's like the history in my game, but it's a little bit indicative or reflective of how the books themselves work in the sense that there is conflicting information from group to group. Nobody has the complete picture. And so justifying that in game by saying, yeah, it's like different histories for different authors and devs that works. So we get some details about the sundering. We get the note that humanity created monarchies to rule over it and the she followed suit. So humans are responsible for feudalism in the dreaming ultimately, I suppose. Yeah, it's like before then the she were just the pretty fae that the other fae kind of listened to because they were pretty. Good reasons. But they do also kind of position the sundering as being caused by the fae turning from humanity as much as humanity turning from the fae, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And associates the advancement of civilization with the sort of acceleration of banality and autumn, Mm -hmm. which is the theory I like best. There's also mention of the greatest clashes twixt courts Seely and Unseely, which is a very difficult sentence to enunciate. <laughs> so the courts at least existed during the time of the Sundering. Yeah, I think it was, said it was created from the Sundering, like created during the Sundering. And then that leads into the Shattering. Mm-hmm. Which it outlines is actually taking several genera- mortal generations of time. Mm. Kind of happening at different rates in different places, I suppose. Even at the same place taking quite a while yeah with certain breakpoints like the black death for example which has come up repeatedly yeah which from a mortal history perspective is not right but what they say but another confusion i had maybe i misread it but it sounds like they were calling the basically the non-she kithane rulers the burgess here but later burgess means something else in this book i think it's just a word that gets thrown around to mean hang on i'm gonna actually look it up yeah, Burgess with no bloodline came to power through craft or brute force. I think they're probably just using it to mean any kind of noble who isn't them or any kind of any kind of representative of theirs, which would include commoner nobles standing in for them while they were gone. Yeah. In their in their perspective, maybe. It's just we can get to it later, but they would they mean the, we can come back to it later. It means something completely different later. Yes. Well, and that's a question. For, all right, we we need to cut this later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There was another thing. Lost my place. Oh, yeah. There's a note on page 21 about the final battle at the world's end, where the High King Falcon at the time was cut down and a great rushing darkness took his body. I have no idea what that is. Like, is that referenced anywhere else? The final battle at the world's end? don't recall that is that the same high king that like turned on those mountain people like betrayed them is that a different high king maybe oh the lords of the mound yes maybe yeah and we also have the fall of silver's gate which again is an immortalized thing that pops up from time to time lots of events happening during the shattering it wasn't just Mm -hmm. a one and done kind of event so for the for the new house that is introduced in this book because this book introduces a lot it mentions that the mendicant house Skaha, 
that's the pronunciation, stayed behind. And they're the only ones that stayed behind in any uh, numbers, which kind of gets walked back a little bit later on, especially, again, with the autumn she being introduced. Mm -hmm. But most of them fled to the earth, which led to the interregnum. Yeah, I think that that was sort of consistent throughout Changeling until C20. Which part? That only the Skaha stayed behind? In great numbers. Ah, yeah. Well, in like Liam, there's, you know, some allusions to a lot of them staying behind. I don't know. Yeah. A few Fiona, no doubt. Well, yeah, there's like, there's even like Lord Gwydion stayed behind or something, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For most of the Shi, though, the interregnum was just a bunch of hazy memories of Arcadia. Mm -hmm. When the commoner nobles ruled the earth instead. And then there are the lost ones who are hidden in their glens, the ones who barricaded themselves with glamour. Mm -hmm. We have a specific note about the Empire of the Turtle, the name drawn from Nunihi legends to refer to North America. That's a pretty common name around here. Mm. Not Empire, but Turtle Island. I mean, in in the books, it's the first time it's mentioned in the books, and this is, I think, the first time they actually kind of directly refer to it. There's a quote here from Edgewick where he says, I've said it at court many times and it bears repeating. When the land is crownless, it lacks a soul. When the land is soulless, it lacks honor. When the land is without honor, beware the wolf at the door. And I think that kind of describes the Shi's entire ethos of rulership. You know, <laughs> that's that could be their motto, take it or leave it. Yeah, and they do have the whole throughout here, and I, I actually use this, is the what's the term, the king is the land or something like that? The, the, the place reflects the tempers, if you will, of the ruler. Yeah, well, like the Fisher King myth. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're, it's actually good that they're a ruler. Right, exactly. But by being a ruler, they do shape the land. So, Which does come up later a bit. Mm-hmm. So then the resurgence. Yes. And another description of the Accordance War. We get quite a few of them in this these early books. And the later books. It, it's just, they just keep every on. changeling book has to talk about it. I David think. just keeps showing up with that sword. Yep. True Thomas just keeps popping up and saying, behold, or no, turn and face your king. I have the exact quote because it's in here again. Well, in the, this book, it contradicts books before and after it saying things like she wouldn't know how to ride motorcycles when they came back. Right. Well, and, and like you said, this is an unreliable narrator. So yeah, when it's... he came back, he didn't have as good memories of the mortal world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Edgewick would not ride a motorcycle, perhaps. So we have all this description of the atrocities that the commoners committed and again it's it doesn't quite rise to the level of she propaganda maybe but it's definitely it doesn't really shy away from the beltane blade either the beltane massacre either yeah in fact he's like going no it wasn't just this one she it was a it, he's saying it wasn't that one she but he's saying it's a bunch of other she so mm-hmm. some of who are still in power which he immediately follows up with, oh, I might also add parenthetically that the commoners were not without stain when it came to atrocities in the prosecution of the war. And it's, yep. you know, when you when you think about the themes of changeling and the conflict between noble and commoner, that sort of encapsulates it. That sort of we're right, you're wrong mentality that neither side seems fully able to kind of come to terms with. Yeah, I, I, I can believe both sides did a lot of nasty things to each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But then we get to the present where... Edgewick kind of describes the current situation of the kingdoms. There is the note, interestingly, these kingdoms are fluid in their composition and borders, which was a surprise to me. Yeah, I'm like, how does it switch? Is that fighting? Is that weird dealings? I guess just freeholds changing hands? I don't know. Yeah, and 
it, it, there's this one problem where okay they've they've set it up as like this dynamic setting that's supposed to change and then they haven't because right like it even should have changed throughout the line before the hiatus right like at some point that, you would think yeah not everything but a few things should change but. yeah yeah anyway that's the history which i would say is pretty in line with what we've already seen in the core book because mm-hmm. the core book is already sort of she tilted in its perspective so then we move on to chapter two rank and privilege we're told that nobility has disproportionate control over the trods and freeholds they're reinforced by being the dreams of nobility and according to this book at least the return of the she uh, and the structure of sort of titles and everything that they brought with them cut down on warfare that was happening between the kiths which that seems like a very sort of she perspective, you know? Oh, yes. we came back and all of the rabble fell into line. I could see it resulting in the, the warfare bit. I'm not so sure on, but the mm-hmm. throughout Concordia, there being more travel. That is pretty typical when you dump in like an empire or something from a place that was politically separated, a bunch of smaller separated places. But I would almost say though, it's, it might be a false because when you think about what was happening in mortal history at the same time, you know, the world has gotten more and more interconnected and globalized in the last, last mm. 50 years anyway. So yeah. was it already on that trend for people to start traveling more and integrating more? Travel is easier for mortals, so it'd be easier for right. Kithane as well. Uh, there's one line here. It's like, many Kithane don't even associate with changelings other than their own kith. Is that a thing you used in your games? Never. Me neither. I've seen it come up before and I'm like, why would I? No. (laughs) I suppose player characters are supposed to be somewhat exceptional in lots of ways. And one of them is forming a motley with other kiths as sort of a super friends. Maybe that's the But but look at like every single group of NPC commoners hanging out. (laughs) They're always different kiths. I guess only, only the ones who are worthy of specific inclusion in the books are the ones that break the mold. Yeah. I have had like... It's like they work maybe with their own kith more. Like well, they understand each other better. Like you'll get a group of boggins working together and a group of knockers working together and a group of redcaps ganging together, right? Like but that doesn't mean they don't talk to anybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this presents common nobles or commoner nobles having the default state of kithane during their interregnum. I don't know. I never got the impression before like from other books or just how I think of it that like a lot of the leaders were actually would have had been titled, but maybe this is just a she interpretation of having a leader of some sort. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We then have some information about the Escheat and the various mm-hmm. rights and how the she or nobility at least feel about them. Some mm-hmm. are more important than others, but well, some are followed more regularly than others. Let's say that. <laughs> I, I would have liked it talked. Okay, so it says the Ashit was basically in place throughout the Interregnum, too. Yeah. And then it talks about, oh, the She came back and brought in all these other laws, which were like the Kithane, like the commoners don't like. I would have liked to see some of those. They, they talk about the legal systems they bring back, but not like, what are these laws that are really the commoners are objecting to, some of them? Maybe things like, you can only get dross from your freehold on every other Tuesday or something. Yeah. You have to tag your garbage bag? I don't know. Alternate side parking. Yeah. How dare those pointy ear bastards? Oh man, it's just all municipal bylaws and stuff. Like, well, your your freehold cannot be more than two stories tall in this neighborhood. I'm having ideas for Dante. 
Uh, it also says little tidbit, uh, Kinane were created basically during their interregnum as well. And that's a thing I don't really think. So. I I mean, they talk about other books too. Like, I think the Fae were sleeping with mortals and having babies way before the Shattering. Probably. Maybe not quite so regularly out of necessity though. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, the, the Kinane... Because there's there's Kinane who are just the offspring of Changeling Immortals, and then there's Kinane who are bloodlines that kind of permanently have fey blood threaded throughout them. And mm. that, I think, might take more sustained canoodling, let's say. And we get a yeah. whole chapter on canoodling later, so... Yeah, it would kind of get creepy if you're not reincarnating. Mm. <laughs> I don't know, is it creepy if you are reincarnating? I think it's creepy either way when you think too long about it, but anyway... Um, um, we have some notes, again, speaking about the legal systems that came back. We have the justice system. There's the commoner courts and the usul, or high courts. So there's also this note about the fior, which is the, the time-honored tradition of the nobility, which is trial by ordeal. I remember learning about trials by ordeal in, I don't know, sixth grade history or something, and they were terrifying. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, plunge your hand into a pot of boiling water and pull out the white hot iron and walk 20 paces with it or whatever. And if you can do that, you're not guilty. I don't think a lot of she have to do that one. No, probably not. It'd be great if they did that. Well, for one thing, it would be iron. They, they yes. could use brass or something. It doesn't have to be cold iron necessarily. You could use a hot rock. But it also talks about, unlike in the real world with those kind of things, the dreaming does step in, maybe? Yeah. So it says an innocent changeling is helped by the dreaming during her fear, a guilty one is hindered. There's a whole section here on noblesse oblige and the notion of noble responsibilities. And it's divided into good deeds and power corrupts. And we get some specific examples of each. So how the she might be good and helpful, which includes things like unifying Cathane society into this structured space of the court, opening up new freeholds. And the one that I find a little bit I don't know. I don't quite roll my eyes at it, but when it says things about how, like, oh, you know, a lot of Cathane were glad that the She came back because we were always the heart of the Cathane, and when they abandoned the Fae during the Shattering, a vital part of the Cathane spirit was severed. And it's like I'm sure he's been told stuff like that by commoners. Yes. Yeah, but you know, to his face. But it's. I mean, again, it's. It reinforces that this is a book from the She perspective. Of course, they want to yeah. think we're the the heart of the Cathane. So it's so great that we came back and we filled that hole in the soul. It's like, uh, well, there were yeah. there were lots of Fae who were doing just fine without you. Yeah, and if they are doing better, it, well, later talks about this, like taking credit for the resurgence. Like the right. resurgence did good things. Yeah, but I, I do like this chapter has uh, talks about seely She villains. Mm -hmm. They can happen. Good. Seely villains. Thank you. I think Duke Dre is a good Seely villain, actually. I mean, he's mm -hmm. the classic sort of mustache twirling autocrat type, willing to use any means necessary to advance his goals, etc., etc. Going in full Xanatos Gambit stuff. Yeah. This chapter also talks about the Burgess, which means enchanted human servants. Right. So here's the, this, the discrepancy. This connects to a question we had from a listener, from a storyteller. Yeah. What tasks do the she ask of the Burgess, the enchanted mortal servants to keep in the freeholds? Likewise, how do they attempt to protect their own freeholds from mortal influence beyond being quest givers for a commoner motley? I guess the question to what do they ask is whatever they want. Yeah. And it seems to be um, things requiring little skill and perhaps a lot of risk. Often artists or children. Yeah. So it's like, let's send a five-year-old and a talented painter to 
go deliver a message that might get them executed? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very thin paragraph, but mm-hmm. probably True Thomas is the most famous of like the mortals in regular service. But he does a lot. He's he's a special guy. So yeah. There's also the question: How do they attempt to protect their own freeholds from mortal influence? Which I see as there are a lot of she who play the mortal influence game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because of the mists, they can do it in, combined with you know sovereign. They can do it in a way that no one else would really know they did it. So yeah. it, it seems like, okay, a powerful enough she, like say you have like Count or a Duke or something, and there's a threat to like their main freehold. I feel like they could, they'd have the resources to deal with that threat, like zoning issues or something, right? And it's important to remember that the changelings do also operate in the mortal world and the she tend to have quite a bit of influence in that regard as well. They chose yep. hosts who were well-placed and... Yep. going places and even if this particular she doesn't there's other she that do and they can yeah call upon it and finally we get a couple notes about special powers and permanent cantrips in freeholds but we can probably save that for the chapter that actually has those powers so then we get chapter three politics i have a lot of thoughts on this chapter let's hear them okay so my first question though is how does the autumn she fit into this like it talks about the what we now call Arcadian Chi versus the commoner nobles, right? And then there's mm-hmm. Saha, but they're they're off doing their own thing, right? Presumably. But if you were trying to apply this book to C20, a lot of the autumn Chi would be active. I would put them at the high end of commoner nobles. Like I would align them with Boggins and Trolls in the sense that when the Arcadian Chi came back, you could say probably some of them we're like, okay, well, I guess you can have your freehold back. And others said, no, we're the rightful owners. What are you talking yeah. about? And Maybe some of them actually got to keep, the, depending on their title, got to keep their... Right. Well, the title they they would have. The she couldn't come mm-hmm. back and take away a title. Well, maybe they, I guess with naming they could, but... What I mean is when the she come back, they would have probably been treated a bit better than... Yeah. Like a not, yeah. like a boggin or a troll. Yeah, because they're still she, yeah. even though they're... You can look at it in the same way as Skaho or Liam are treated, probably, in the sense mm-hmm. of being looked down on and having having their social difficulty penalty mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, when you have a stratified society, that means you have a lot of strata. Yeah, and that is one yeah. of the sort of wrinkle points when you do try to bring this book into C20, I think. Mm-hmm. The Autumn She sort of throw a spanner in the works. For our stat-loving listeners, 5% of all Cathane and Cordia are She. But they have 42% of the seats in the Parliament of Dreams. Yeah, that, that's where I'm getting... Okay, significant figures are a thing. Like, when you're getting to 42%, that's applying a certain level of precision that don't think you could measure in this, or that would stay at 42%. It would Surely, a year from now, would be either 44% or, like, 39%. How often do they do they vote, I suppose? How can we tell? Them? Yeah, I didn't see anything about term limits or elections. <laughs> I think it's... I think it might elections. be... Who said anything about elections? Well, okay. <laughs> it's kind of like the American Constitution, not the current setup for senators, where each instead of a state, you have freeholds, and the freehold just determines who they're sending. Well, it's every every freehold with a membership over 15. Yes. Sorry, every freehold with a membership over 15. But how that freehold decides it, and then they sort of be sent for as long as, until the freehold says, no, bring him back, we're sending somebody else. I guess it just, or if there's an assassination, which apparently happens more often than you'd expect. Yeah. Or they just fall to banality. Right. 
It also says the mood is somewhat akin to that of the English Parliament. It is lively and animated, punctuated by verbal jibes. Have you watched I was going to say, (laughs) that's a very charitable description of English Parliament sometimes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, they have to say, I I do like the, like, they have to say weird words for whatever things they'd normally say. There's also this note that King David founded the Parliament in 1971, even though King David wasn't King David until 1974, but we'll leave that aside. Wait. But wasn't didn't the Accords War only last two years? No, it was five years. Nineteen seventy four. Wow. Which is like I mean, earlier in the same book, these dates are given, I think. Okay. Yeah. New Year's New Year's Day, nineteen seventy four. Well, I guess it didn't start right away officially, did it? Because both sides it took both sides well to figure out what the heck was happening. The Beltane Massacre was nineteen seventy. High King Devith mm-hmm. died New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy three. David whipped okay. out Caliburn the next day and then the war ended later that year i think is the timeline yeah so let's go with you didn't set it up in 1972 because that would be or maybe it's the she time thing they talk about later i don't know we get some political impulse descriptions we have traditionalists who obviously want the old ways reformers who want a constitutional monarchy and modernists who i don't even know that you could really call this a political mindset it says they embrace or it says they either cautiously accept the modern world as a reality that must be dealt with or embrace it totally. And that doesn't yeah. really seem... It seems like every political... It would include every political position the United States yeah. has ever had. Yeah. So. <laughs> like, some other place... Oh yeah, Canada has some, I guess, would count as moderates. Oh, and apparently there's a lot of monarchist knockers, and that just made me go, what? Maybe the modernist she are the ones who are kind of like, yeah, we don't need to be nobility. And yeah, I well, the modernist she I take as well, they're still going to be in charge, at least those personally. They're just it's because they're so awesome, not because they're she. Right, they're unconcerned with their feudal rights. Yeah, they're like, I want these rights because I deserve it. A meritocratic she. Yeah, they they basically want to be CEOs. And we have our first notes about Ancelie nobles. And there is a mention of House Aelil, and that is the only named house we get here, but really yep. no other details. We get a few mentions of them throughout the book, but yes. Yeah. Well, because we have, we have a sample character from them who we'll get to. I don't remember Mexico being part of Concordia. Like, I'm really to set that in the core book, but it talks about Mexico being part of Concordia here, but might be falling soon. Did it actually fall later on in another book? We'll have to, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Honestly, I don't think they paid too much attention to it after naming it. Uh, There is, I mean, one of the things, so in the lexicon, there's the reference to the sun and the serpent being the name for the border between the kingdom of the burning sun, which is the Southwest US, and the kingdom of the feathered snake, which is Mexico. Particularly given how the last few decades have gone, I find that, you know, it's a little weird to kind of talk about an active like very contentious place that would be a very banal place in in the context of oh it's this political boundary for the fae that kind of gets gets fractious yeah. you know that i was a little bit i mean this is kind of like the 90s white wolf bingo card or drinking game they mention let's take current politics and make really like things that are people are dying over and like make really light of it well and it was i mean it's hard to think back to like a time before ice, for example, and how it how it might have been different, if at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know that I would go so far as to say it's the bingo card, but there's certainly elements that are that are problematic. Yeah, this, this is when the right wing in the U.S. was very 
they hadn't done much from my understanding in terms of border controls. They were just arguing for that kind of stuff you got. Oh, they were arguing a lot of things. Yes, it's, but that's not of... a time I like to dwell. <laughs> no. We get some brief descriptions of each of the Sealy houses and descriptions of the different levels of title from kingdom to duchy to county to barony mm-hmm. and fiefdom and household, each of which appears to be sort of defined by the number of freeholds that, that make them up. I don't remember that from elsewhere, and I don't know how well that really works, to be honest. I think it might get replicated in later books. Like, I think it might be in the second edition core book. But... It's just the specificity of it that I find strange. Like, a county is made up of no more than four freeholds, usually two or yeah. three. And a county can be yeah. fairly large, so... Yeah. Yeah, That the numbers themselves I don't like in the specific yeah. ones. But having the basic concept, I think, kind of works, as opposed to, like drawing it based on square footage or area or something. state borders yeah well the official definitions we get besides kingdom the duchy consists of many freeholds and typically encompasses entire regions and large cities counties mm-hmm. are no more than four baronies are no more than two and then a fiefdom is maybe one i definitely in my games have had more freeholds at each level yeah oh same because it's just, I suppose when you actually look at the way the books are written, it's not every city has a freehold. Not every group of changelings will have access to one. And mm-hmm. it makes a very glamour impoverished game to play it that way, which a lot of players don't really seem to like. So yeah, anytime I've run like a three to four, whatever group of changelings, they'll have a, at least one freehold. Yeah. So on the levels of title land, does this one have, would you say, baronies are inside counties or inside duchies or inside kingdoms? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. This is also the part where they mention that the environment in each of these sort of domains is affected by its ruler's mood. Although mm-hmm. the smaller the domain, the more weakly it's affected. Yep. Yeah, and that's a mechanic I like, and it yeah. doesn't have to be she. Yeah. We get some dreaming notes on that as well, where the dreaming itself seems to kind of reflect the Lord's condition as well. A territory ruled by a disagreeable noble is infested by all manners of chimerical monsters. Yep, it did, it did say this is why there aren't any unseelie nobles. <laughs> well, and then 5% later books apparently. just have unseelie nobles and just have lands like that. So yeah, <laughs> why not? Because they re- maybe they realized, wait, no, that makes for a better game. <laughs> but in the same way, there can be seely villains. There can be unseelie heroes or yeah. pleasant unseelie nobles. Yeah, it's just like they're unseelie, maybe, but well, it's like the weird meat-eating horses that roam the area. Like maybe they're actually, you know, you can ride them and stuff. It's just yeah, there's always blood dripping from their red cap horses. Yep. We have my favorite epigraph in the entire book under the secret societies chapter. We have a quote from the constitutional peasant in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, who points out mm-hmm. strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power is derived from a mandate by the masses, not some farcical aquatic ceremony. Such a great scene. Yes, totally invalidates King David. There are a lot of secret societies here. I, I like these. Though. These are all ones. Oh, yeah. Like the the Red Branch Knights. I mean, interesting things to when you get to using them as metaphors for mortal society, it gets a bit, eh. But I think they're cool stories. Let's, let's try an experiment. One of us calls out the name of a secret society and the other gives a description. Okay. Briefly. Okay, go for it. Red Branch Knights. They're the respectable, nice knight type people. The honorable ones, the chivalrous ones. Beltane Blade. Yeah, Beltane Blade. They are 
the nasty sealy she that want to dominate and kill the kill off the rabble rousing commoners and rule everything. The ranters down with Concordia. All hail Discordia, the anti-monarchist changeling commoners who are led by this Ravachol guy, and they hang out with Gary Monkey Ranchers and they're anarchists yeah. or anarcho-syndicalists, yeah. I should say. Yeah, I had a little issue with that because the anarcho-syndicalists I've known are much less exciting than this. And much less likely to actually blow stuff up. I don't think uh, it's unreasonable to say that Kithane are a little bit extra wherever they, whatever they do. That's true. Yeah. The Catacomb Club. This is the gentleman's club of nobles trying to individually take over, I guess. Or like, it's, it's basically helping each other power. The Crystal Circle. The Sorcerers, which in Fey terms specifically means someone with level five in one art, level four in another. And they are the fey wizards who are particularly adept at Kronos and Dreamcraft. Beginning player characters should not belong to the Crystal Circle. The Cat's Cradle. The good guys of Changeling. No, um... Kind of. It's all women who are fairy noblewomen who are basically secretly working to make sure that, like, it doesn't all fall apart. I think they're my favorites. Yes, I like them. The Monkey's Paw. Actually, these might be my favorites, uh, but they're primarily commoner hired assassins. Yeah, I, I want to like play or run in a game of them. Yes, PCs. The Golden Sickle. Okay, so they are she modernist she, not all modern she actually. Some of them are other Kithane who basically want to get rich and have mortal power. And I love throwing these guys into games because. They don't necessarily have to be antagonists always, but they're not really allies either. They hang out with glasswalkers and virtual adepts too, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, they're the rich one. They're the rich bastards of Changeling. Yeah, and then we get Clancy Brown as a Kithane on page forty-nine. So then we have some notes about intrigue and the art of the game. I kind of liked the note somewhere in here. They say that essentially she are better at intrigue and the dreaming because the dreaming reinforces their sort of perspective that they're like the master manipulator, the protagonist of this sort of courtly intrigue story. And I do kind of like that aspect. Mm -hmm. Here it is. The she in particular view every minute of their lives in the dreaming as being part of a living story. So I think that's pretty cool. There's a bit about courtly love, which again, we're getting to a whole chapter piece on that. So Mm -hmm. And then again, another important note, mortal life, where it talks about the she and really not how they balance their fey and their mortal selves, because they say they spend as little time in their mortal seemings as possible, which leads to some problems. Mm-hmm. So it's an important aspect that gets overlooked quite often. Yeah, really high ranking, powerful she, they get stuff taken care of for them. But like your she knights or barons? Eh. It's that their great noble houses in the dreaming may hide a dilapidated shack in the mundane world, or a she knight living on the street. There's a compelling aspect. I mean, one of the sort of go-to films for Changeling, perhaps, is The Fisher King starring Robin Williams. And I think of that mm-hmm. as like a she knight living on the street story. Yep. So Yeah, you can do a lot of things with that character that don't look like rich bastard privilege, yeah. whatever. And then we get an overview of the kingdoms of Concordia, which are pretty, I mean, there's a whole map and everything, but if Concordia is the entirety of the North American continent, which has caused some debate in the past. Well, it's not all of North, it's definitely not all of North America, because it definitely doesn't include part of Panama. 
Right. I mean, that's the, it's like, is it, is it a geopolitical definition? Is it a geographic definition? Is it whatever definition they're throwing in here? You know? Yeah. In any case, there's Concordia, which is most of North America. Mm-hmm. And that consists of the kingdom of apples in the Northeast kingdom of Northern nice. How's, how's things up in the kingdom of Northern nice, Josh? Uh, I like their descriptions and it feels like if I had written it, I think I would have been like doing that like whole fanfic self, not self-insert, but like <laughs> playing up where I am live too much. But I do find the queen of, of Northern Ice and like the description of the kingdom just kind of awesome. Are the fae of that kingdom truly a hardy, independent and unpredictable breed? Sure. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, where I basically have always set my games is pretty dang close to uh king of apples and bit of kingdom of grass but right on i do like just the character name i keep cracking up over is duke rococo of the shadow court there used to be the fire signed theater radio comedy troupe and they had this character rocky rococo and that's all i can think of be like good evening this is rocky rococo yeah i think you'd have to make him secret i did i have had queen laurel I've had her a lot. Like I brought her several times. Hmm. Especially one time when I was running a LARP, things got so bad politically that she had to show up. She's pretty fierce. She is kind of the most puissant of the the monarchs, it seems. So, yeah. So then we have the Kingdom of Willows in the southeast, and the Kingdom of White Sands, which is specifically Florida, the Kingdom of Pacifica along the west coast of the U.S., the Kingdom of Grass in the plains and central states. Kingdom of the Burning Sun and the Southwest, the Kingdom of the Feathered Snake, which corresponds to Mexico, and the Fiefs of Bright Paradise in the Caribbean, which mm-hmm. I've always wanted to set a game in and like do some kind of supplement on, but I feel like I just don't have enough, well, yeah, time and energy, but also firsthand knowledge. Yeah, you, I, I don't think it would be good to just make it like the books have been and it's just pirates all the time. Right, yeah. The fact, though, at least that they have it as separate actual places that are not all ruled by one ruler makes a lot of sense because it yeah. would not be. There's also this note that the Kingdom of the Feathered Snake has the most powerful Nunahian Concordia, which I'd like to see more about that, you know? Yeah. It's, they keep. I mean, it's only nominally in Concordia as part of the. Right. You know, give me Chaneke and Duende and Alashob, and that's what I want to see from Mexican today. Then we get chapter four, worldview. There's a lot of letters. A lot of this book is sort of, there is sort of the unreliable narrators just kind of telling the story, but then there's all of this sort of correspondence, sometimes on very fancy paper, scattered throughout the pages. Mm -hmm. And this chapter opens with such a missive. As Lady Sierra flees from another named villain who I chuckle about, which is Lord Vogon, who must write very bad poetry. Yes, I can. Yeah, and he's the one allele. Yeah, the the one named one from, I say Elil. I don't know if it's Elil or Elil. Elil. I don't know. But yeah, I think Lady Sierra is one of those, hey, what's a she that's not a terrible villain? There you go. And of course she like dies or something, maybe. Bummer. Well, she disappears and she has not been seen since. But she apparently also hates knockers. So I don't know how you feel about that. (sighs) We get some notes about, mostly from Lady Sierra, but a couple from Professor Edgewick about all of the kits in turn. And again, there's this very anti-Slua sort of stuff. They really were setting up the Slua as like the secret villains of Changeling, I think, for a bit. Yeah, or at least the anti-She. Yeah, with red caps a close second, maybe. It's like, well, it's just, if the She are the pretty ones, what's the least pretty ones? Right, because that's the only reason they could have to hate the She. 
just pure jealousy. And we get anime descriptions. They talk about the mannequin people and the golem. Was this the first in anime? I think it is where they're officially named this. And they're separate from the nymphs specifically, who slowly yes. sort of disappear from the canon. Yeah. Oh, there's one other thing they do in this. They say that and they, they say in this chapter, but they say it later on too, that the she are better at traveling the dreaming than the issue. And I just, it's, it's definitely established in this book and I hate it. I, I would say some of them might have been shortly after the resurgence, but that the issue probably caught up very quickly. Yeah. I could accept that. And so maybe I could accept the she before they became changelings, like when they were coming back from her right, yeah. traveling better. That's what yeah, I'm... yeah, yeah. They, they took their time along the silver path and took lots of snapshots and wrote travel guides along the way. So they were mm-hmm. well equipped for dancing along and the trods. Fought something. Yeah. Which we get in a later book, but they fought. There are some opinions on the prodigals. Apparently, to the Malkavians, it's as though the she have never left. And the Toreador Prince of Paris, Villon, is friendly to the Fae. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Toreador finding a pretty sheep that they remember from way back when. Okay. The Garou and the Wizards. Somebody mentioned on Discord, or asked on Discord, which mage groups would be most connected to the changelings. And people had put out the Verbena and others said the Dream Speakers. And this is another case where, in first edition, the Dream Speakers seem much more closely aligned than they are later, as the Fae were kind of moved from spirit to other spheres. The associated traditions seem to be less connected to them. They also changed the Dream Speakers in Mage. That so too, first yeah. edition core book dream speakers makes sense to have ties to the fate to some degree. Later on, it'd go well; they'd be tied to the Nunahi. Well, but this was this was second edition mage by the time this came out. Oh yeah. So yeah. In any case, she didn't mention. I think it's, it says if you get into details in later Sierra in the romance section, it would explain why she doesn't talk about the ex- cult of ecstasy in here. They would hang out with some fae, just not her. Uh, I think it's Queen Morgana hangs out with them. So. Mm. Yep. And then some notes about ghosts. There's some bits about the Shadow Court, and since Lady Sierra is passionately silly, she's very anti-Shadow Court. I like the bit about the assassination attempt against Queen Laurel and the highly embarrassing Impetigo incident, which reminds me of like the noodle incident from Calvin and Hobbes. I don't think we ever get a definition of what that is, and you just kind of have to imagine. <laughs> it's one of those pranks that didn't involve an art. Something like that. Bits about the Lost Ones, which are the Fae who survived on Earth by shutting themselves away and letting themselves fall into Bedlam. They're powerhouses of glamour embedded into the landscape. Humans and Fomorians. Yeah, the Fomorians where they're just like, well, there's these Fomori, kind of like the Fomorians, but not really. At Hmm. the border of Sun and Serpent. Yep. And they're noted to be heavily laden with banality as well. So again, it makes me think, Mm -hmm. well... It also says they seem to be allied with Count Vogon, as well as a pack of dark-hearted Garou and some human, quote, corporations. So it seems pretty clear that they're meant to be Fomori here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to be setting up some Fae think that the Fomori are the Fomorians, and then some are skeptical. Yeah. With hinting they're probably not the, actually the Fomorians, but maybe there's some connection. There's a slow divergence through the books. Yeah. So the next bit, I have to say, I think is my favorite part of the entire book which is an odd and maybe bold statement to make, but it's on she perceptions of memory and time. Yep. And this is a bit I both like and never use in my game. <laughs> well, the reason I like it is because I think it gives a really good perspective on why it's unique to play a she. When you think of mm-hmm. each kith and you think about how is the experience of playing them unique, 
playing an issue is like this, playing a puka is like this, and playing a she, just being sort of haughty and noble and full of yourself, that's something any changeling can have, any sort of... Yeah. Weirdly, in this book, several puka. Right. And what distinguishes the she is that they have this different relationship with the world around them that informs their worldview and their attitudes, where it's simultaneously like yeah. amnesia and nostalgia and remembering all of these memories, all of these past lives, but not the thing you're desperately trying to cling to. And they have this mm -hmm. fragility with their lives. You know, they're, they're very susceptible to banality. They're worried about will they reincarnate at all? And that conflicts with this, but I'm immortal, I'm eternal, kind of. So that that yeah. conflict I find to actually be much more interesting about them than, oh, they're the nobles, you know? And the whole not reincarnating thing, like like you are in your last life, maybe? Yeah. So you could get a lot yeah. out of that with a character from exploring yeah. those aspects. Yeah, and, and you get nostalgic for breakfast. Like it's that, is, like that is one of my favorite pieces about the she. Yeah. So I think that's important to kind of bear in mind mm -hmm. for any would-be she players and i really like i don't know that that is quite in any of the other books maybe some of the books of houses stuff kind of dive into that a little but here it's really yeah. well i think it might get referenced yeah but it's definitely got diluted over time yeah but if you want to go, go into she without dealing with all the noble nonsense that's a, one of the good roads mm -hmm. or with the noble nonsense either way but as long as this part is here then you can do the noble nonsense mm -hmm. and then we get the love section <laughs> I, I am think, not a fan of this. <laughs> I don't think we need to actually do a content warning necessarily for talking about it, but just be aware that if you're reading this book, it, it veers from gross to unnecessary, this section, yeah. unless you really, really want to run a game that's about changelings and sex. If you do, this maybe will give you some ideas that aren't, you know... I don't think it gives enough info on doing that, though. That's part of the problem. It's like this half measure. Well, it gives you it gives you info on doing it in a very specific way that I think is unhelpful. For example, you have romantic legacies as traits you can add to your character sheet in addition to your regular yeah. legacies. So if you feel you really but, need those, here they are. But unlike your regular legacies, they don't do anything? I suppose that they should be paired with, because there's sealy ones and unsealy ones, so maybe whenever your unsealy legacy is dominant, then your unsealy romantic legacy is also dominant. Yeah. So... But like legacies have effects on willpower or things like that. Like throughout the editions, these don't. Yeah, this just has an effect on boning. Yeah. Well, even then, I don't know. I don't know. I think your legacy, regular legacy, can affect your boning just fine too. Oh yeah, boning is multi-legacy. It's a sentence I don't think I'd ever would say. Mm -hmm. There's also obviously courtly love is a big part of things like Arthurian myth and a lot of the sort of inspirations that go into the she and nobility but i don't know that we needed like romantic societies of oh the romantic societies i don't could you could you actually like think of how that society would function not really i think it's it's just kind of a reflection of you know when you read like the stories of lancelot or sir gawain or whoever and just yeah. their different attitudes towards chivalry and behavior and that's do, do, i haven't read a lot of the actual authority stuff does it have a lot of boning no that's the point there's there's specifically yeah. very little boning so. yes and the boning tends to have serious repercussions so it's a very yeah. chaste kind of body of lore yeah this is not this is not this is very not chaste yeah so you have you have these three societies okay so when it's saying order of the shallot that's the first one right are they talking about like the onions this is the lady of shallot as in the oh 
That makes more sense. Okay. Yes. There's the Cyrenaics who are the fun ones. and Which is also, uh, I, I get annoyed with the Cyrenaics because I'm like, that's not what the Cyrenaics were like, like the philosophical school. Yeah. Anyway. And the ascetics who very much don't bone. So yeah, it's the asexual maybe ones. Yeah. I will say if a game does have hanky panky of various types, it is nice to have notes like, yes, cantrips could be used to enhance senses and we'll let you do the math to figure out what that would result in. And there are, it does mention things like assault is a thing that can happen and Mm -hmm. changelings can be guilty of it as well. And this is another form of horror that changeling can have in it. So Mm-hmm. It does allow for that to be part of the so game. Maybe, yeah, and again, this was written in 1995 or 96 or whatever, so yeah. they don't include all the things you really should on how to introduce that in a game without it going very bad. But. Right. Yeah, I mean, this was way before, I would say, there was the popularity of things like X cards and whatnot, so, yeah, you know. And there's mm-hmm. also the weird footnote about how there's increasing popularity of arranged marriages among commoners, which... Oh, wait, what? At the top of page oh. 68. <laughs> Yeah, is it because the, the nobles doing it? Okay, and then getting popular among certain common kith. Yeah, I'm like, which ones exactly? <laughs> which ones and where? Yes, I I could see the boggins doing it. Yeah, or at least arranging other mar- people's marriages. And there's a lot about having affairs with satyrs and affairs with prodigals as well. So you can really just whoever you want your fay to bone. Here are options. Yes, yeah. I mean I. Every werewolf game I've been involved with has had a lot of boning, so... That's for werewolf. This is Changeling. Yes. And I, I mean, mean I, I will say, full disclosure, I have been in Changeling games. I've played in Changeling games where boning has been part of the narrative, but I never yeah. felt like it was a compulsory part to include for the sake of having maturity in the game or whatever. Oh, no. So. But, I mean, you have relationships, and, like, yeah, I've run LARPs. Oh, sure. Where you're not going to have the boning at the LARP, but you will have characters hooking up and then the next session their characters are like whatever relationship stage they're in right now that's reflected that's fine yes but i would argue that this section is purely about sex and Mm -hmm. inorganic relationships relationships that are Mm -hmm. structured in some kind of intentional philosophical way and not the sort of middle ground that happens when two people actually meet and have chemistry so there's that (laughs) i saw it as more both I think it's telling that whenever I envision doing any kind of relationship in a game, I don't think I would use any of this because none of it mm. would feel like narrative choices that my character would make. So I, I just found it not useful. A yeah. lot of it is for being like, uh, okay, sure. You didn't really need to say that. Yeah. Anyway. And then they get creatures of love, which gets reflected in the later chapter. Thankfully, there are notes about how to handle appearance over five. Which I liked that little. Yeah. And then there's romantic theater, which seems like an actual thing. Yeah, it's basically the she. Maybe this is going the the actual purpose of the nobility, she nobility in that they serve in Kithane society is to basically be like a in person, real soap opera. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like the royals in the British press, where everyone sort of follows their yeah. lives and relationships. Except for from afar, they're all really attractive and act way more entertainingly. Exactly. And then we're on to chapter five, which is mostly mechanical stuff, new stuff. Yeah, it's got character creation rules. This is where it's not a kith book, because do you have any seen any character creation rules in a kith book? Yeah, so the difference here is that you have 
choose political impulse, romantic legacy, and secret or romantic romanticist society, mm-hmm. if applicable. Otherwise, it's the same character creation rules. Technically, this all applies. This doesn't just apply to she. Right. Well, nobles in general, perhaps. Nobles who are part of all of those structures with the societies and the courtly love as a value, etc. They have uh, temp- the new skill Temporal Sense, which is listed as a background in some of the later NPCs, I think, which is just you're good with time. I'm I, I'm never quite sure where you're supposed to roll it. It's kind of time one as a skill. Okay. And it says it's useful for casting Kronos cantrips, which I think is the only reason it's here. Mm. There's also Dream Lore, which kind of gets folded into Grimaire as a knowledge later, but just knowledge of the dreaming. Mm-hmm. Presumably helpful for Dreamcraft, although I don't think that's mechanically supported. And then a bunch of backgrounds. Yeah, some of which do get repeated. Yeah, I was kind of like... So it says, you know, there's political connections. It is not the same as the title background. And I guess you're meant to represent someone in the Parliament of Dreams because it's each level is you represent a freehold of a growing size or a group of freeholds when you get to the higher levels. So, yeah, I, I guess that's what it's meant to represent. But wouldn't that just be the same as something like influence or I don't know? Yeah. And there's patron, which is not the same as a mentor. So... Yeah, having backgrounds into overlap each other is not a yeah. new to this book thing, but yeah. Yeah, there's a multiplicity of backgrounds in the older editions. I think this, yeah, this one, I don't know, I have to check. It might actually be in the C20 Player's Guide. We also have a trod background, which is, again, different from holdings. So you, if you yes. have a freehold, you don't necessarily have a trod. If you have a trod that you have access to, you don't necessarily have a freehold. Or at the very least, the levels don't necessarily match up with each other. And the levels are complicated. Mm-hmm. Just as an example, level four can represent that you have access to, I'm going to take a deep breath, four to five local destinations, two regional, one national, e.g. Concordia, and two near-dreaming destinations accessible half of the time, or four to five local destinations, two regional, one national, one near-dreaming, one far-dreaming, accessible one-fourth of the time, or two to three local destinations and one regional destination accessible all the time, or two to three local destinations, one regional destination, and one near-dreaming destination accessible half of the time. And that's at every level has stuff like that. Good luck parsing. Yeah. I need a chart or a table or something. So yeah, new arts. Dreamcraft. I'm not a fan of Dreamcraft. I'm not a fan of this Dreamcraft. They revised this later for Dreams and Nightmares, and it works much, much better. So I'll mm-hmm. say that. And eventually they wrote it out of C20 entirely, so... Didn't they bring it back in the player's guide? Uh, they brought back Tailcraft. Oh, uh, okay. And Infusion. But yeah, pretty... You find the Silver Path at level 1. You can determine what's at the other end of a trod at level 2. You can create an area of stability in the Dreaming at level 3. You can attune yourself to other people or objects in the Dreaming to keep tabs on them in the Dreaming at level 4. And level 5 is basically the same as Legitimate 5, but can only be used in the Dreaming to create instant mm-hmm. castles and such. It's like better ledger domain. Ledger, ledger, yeah, that, that art. That I don't know great. that I would call it better because it costs two permanent points of glamour to use. Oh, never mind. Yes. Okay. I missed that bit. I mean, you create a castle, but you know. No, that's not good, yeah. And then there's Kronos. I yeah. like this art. Yes. I mean, I think I like Kronos as it's done later, maybe a bit better, but Same. I do like this art. And yeah. it has a rule for affecting she with the time sphere. For some reason, that plus two difficulty. I don't know why it's here, but because it doesn't, you don't have to have the art to do that. It's true. Again, the time stuff is the best part of this book, in my opinion. 
And even though C20 Kronos is overall, I think, cooler than this version of Kronos, mm-hmm. I do kind of resent that commoners in this version have a plus one difficulty. It's a, it's presented as like the most restricted until yeah. they come up with naming, which is also the most restricted to she. Right. Anyway, so in this version of Kronos, level one confuses the time sense of who you cast it on. Level two lets you look back into the past. Level three speeds up the forward progression of time or slows it down. Level four maybe is the most useful in first edition because this is essentially what became the time realm. This is what lets you extend cantrips and eventually make them permanent, possibly. And then mm-hmm. uh, level five lets you rewind time. Which it says you should worry about, oh no, the player shouldn't do that. I'm like, oh, no, I like it. I like time travel. I need more time travel in my games. Yeah, there's a few bunks. And mm-hmm. then we get Huskaha, which, yes. what are your thoughts about Huskaha? I mean, this is very sparse in their description. This is one of the, I believe they get written up three times. And this one's, yeah, not much about it, but... Well, given how dense Book of Lost Houses is, by comparison... Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I don't I don't care for them that much, because... Yeah. I, I understand the mythological roots of them in the sense that it was Ku Cullen's tutor, who was this sort of martial yeah. warrioress. But what they've turned into here is, like, ninja oracles, who are also from the Middle East, kind of. And I'm just kind of perplexed by that. Yeah, I'm never super into them, but I've had a lot of players who are, and they don't really offend me. It it's the late the second write up of them that's the problem because they get like martial arts and yeah, yeah. and fate slipperiness and stuff, and it's just yeah they get they get too powerful, and in exchange they only get plus one to appearance in the later book, but they're a little bit Mary Sue. Yeah, I don't think their affinity should be nature in this book though. Oh wait, yeah. Well, Wait, no, yeah, Affinity's by Kith. Why is it a house affinity? I guess because they've been on Earth, so they, you know, they lost their Fey affinity and are instead attuned to nature now or something. I don't know. Yeah, I would have given them, like, scene or something, or actor. And there's also this note that they they have contacts among the Gangrel, the Silent Striders, and the Alibatin. So, sure, they, they just seem like an excuse to have another Super Friends game. I'm not sure. But I don't I don't hate them. It's just I don't I don't particularly care. That for... would be an interesting Super Friends game. It would. They keep looking for their Alibatine comrade. Couldn't well, it's like, them. okay, you mix in the mists and the Alibatine with their uh, arcane. And right. it's just like, okay, <laughs> once again, you don't remember what happened last session. <laughs> recap. Yeah. No, you I can't mean... recap. Your character doesn't remember. <laughs> in any case, it's, it is a very dense crunch chapter. I mean... Yes. Getting all of that in like 10 pages. So then we have, we're still going, chapter six, storytelling. We go through some of the themes and moods. It says it's for running an all noble game, which I would, I don't see myself ever doing, but it then gives a bunch of advice that you don't need for an all noble game. So right, that could be useful. Well, I won't say you couldn't use it for an all noble game. I think it would actually give more character to a noble game if you did use some of this advice, but I doubt. Oh, oh no, I did. What I mean is you don't have to use it. You could use it for other games. Oh, sure. Since I'm not going to run an all noble game, it actually is useful. Yes. Yeah, no, it's overall good stuff to have. Mm -hmm. One of the things that stands out to me, so I was was listening the other day to Opcast, shout out to other podcasts, and it was about Aberrant. Uh, for anyone who hasn't played Aberrant, it's the Onyx Path game where it's superheroes in the Trinity universe. 
And one of the things they pointed out was the tonal difference between the new edition of Aberrant and the old late 90s edition, and talking about how having hope as a theme, you know, kind of seemed like the 90s were kind of more cynical in a lot of ways, like in terms of the media that were out there and stuff. And now hope is like a more, it, it's almost like we need more hope right now. Yeah. And hope punk is a thing hope is an edgy value to include in a game now so trinity kind of leans hard into it in its newer edition in a way that the older edition didn't and it just kind of made me think about um in in relation to this book so they say things like the other theme in, in this book and in this kind of game is one not commonly seen in the world of darkness for it is one of hope the she represent a force of nobility and inner strength rare in these dark days and while i wouldn't necessarily say the she are the model that I want to show hope in the world of darkness. I wonder if to mm -hmm. some extent the reaction against Changeling can be attributed to that. You know, the cynicism of the time in which it was released, people didn't realize how valuable hope could be as a theme. Now, 25, 30 years later, we're like, oh shit, actually, yes, hope is a good thing to have, maybe. It was interesting to kind of read that and think about it. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah, there's like, was it, like yeah, there's a lot of thing here. You could just take out the word she, and it's just as useful too. Yeah. So we get a few story hooks here. We have more about yeah. the Fomorians and the Shadow Court. Yeah, well, it's like there's there's three major threats and three peripheral threat peripheral threats, hmm. and each of them had one that went make me go huh. <laughs> well, so the Shadow Court makes sense for the major threats. Yep. The Shadow Court makes sense. The Fomorians make sense. The hidden ones yep. are the technocracy. And okay. I want that game, but like that paragraph is all you get about that game. Right. <laughs> the she consider gathering information about this group to be extremely important. Good luck. And yeah. then the peripheral threats. The Nunahi, again, it's the characterization of the Nunahi is still kind of still kind of difficult. The prodigals, sure. And then the Slua. Even Seely yep. Slua are considered a threat by many nobles, apparently. So Yep. Okay. Yep. That's the other one that made me go, what? <laughs> yeah. And we do have, in relation to what we said about Book of Storyteller Secrets, where there weren't actually that many storyteller secrets in it, here we do actually have yep. a few in a historical sense. Maybe most notably, the the idea that Lilith is a fairy who spawned the kindred. I don't like having these as storyteller secrets. Mm -hmm. Like, why, why can't players read this part? Yeah, it does actually say there are certain elements that should be known only by the storyteller. I'm like, oh, some people think the red the vampires created by Lilith, or yeah. they're all just rumors. They're not even really plot hooks because they're history tidbits that you could throw in as a theory. Yeah, they're not like there's claims and theories kind of scattered throughout. Yeah, it's not like this is the objective fact you need to hide from your players. It's just maybe it's meant to. Maybe maybe this is going really to my ironic bit and like. It's actually designed to have the players read it and then think they know secret knowledge. Mm. Yeah, perhaps. There's also a mention of the Lords of the Mound here, who I think pop up like once or twice elsewhere, and that's it. Maybe in Kithbook Trolls they're mentioned. And it just says, a yeah. noble kith related to trolls, who High King Falcon betrayed during the Shattering. I so, do want more on them. Well, it says he betrayed the entire kith to its destruction, so I guess that's why we don't get any material about them. I don't recall them yeah. being in Dark Ages Fey at all, because that's an entirely different setting, so... Well, those don't have kiths. Right. So, And then there's just a bunch of sort of random notes and story hooks that 
I think overall are useful. So there's Mm -hmm. bits about Arcadia and suggestions that Arcadia is in some kind of civil war, but nobody can really remember. The dreams are infuriatingly hazy and contradictory. Except for there's something wrong. A lot, lots of people, lots of she remember something went wrong in Arcadia. Assassination, which there have been three regicides and an attempted fourth in the 20 years between the Accordance War and this book. Bits about mortality and how the she fear death like no other kith, which again, I find to be probably the most interesting one to explore in the context of Mm -hmm. a she character or a noble game. Chrysalis. Yeah. There's a quote under Chrysalis with, the human soul is taken to Arcadia where it is well-treated, even pampered. Sounds like she talked to me. And ancient packs. Mm-hmm. That's a thing, a fun thing I want to use in like, I, if I had changelings in other games and you're like, yes, but such and such a pack. And then it's like, actually, like, I don't know, it's a werewolf game and your totem's like, yes, you do have that rule. You're like, what? <laughs> or, a built-in excuse to have a crossover. Yep. And just make like everybody go, what? We have a tiny bit about the structure of the dreaming, which really we don't get a lot more about until dreams and nightmares, I think. Yeah. But... Everything here shows up in multiple times in later books. Yeah. So, I do like the note that the far dreaming is mostly beyond the authority of the she nobility. And also to explore the deep dreaming as Duke Osterland did from the opening story is to be lost forever. Even members of the Crystal Circle travel here but rarely. So I think this is a pretty strong recommendation against having games that just kind of pop into the deep dreaming whenever. So Yeah, that's that's a thing I've had any time they talk about the deep dreaming. Once in other books where you get more system on it, I'm like Nope. I would not casually do this. No. This is near dreaming, yes. You can casually do near dreaming. Yes. Far dreaming, I wouldn't say casually, Far. but you could still do stuff there, right? But yeah. deep dreaming, that's some weird stuff. Near dreaming is a day trip. Far dreaming is a quest. Deep dreaming is an epic quest. Yep. And they explain a bit about Trods as well and the Silver Path. Mm-hmm. And the Silver Path is apparently a joke to Chimera in the deep dreaming. So good luck. Yep. And then menaces. Yes. Again, in relation to the courtly love and sexy stuff, we have the Gunkener, who is a really unpleasant thing to include in a the, game. So This definitely... I know it was 1995, but it still needed some more something. Some veiling. Or, or, no, more than veil. I don't know. But it needs safety tools all over the place. Like, it could be done. And it could be effective in a story. Handle with extreme caution. Yeah. Because it's essentially a chimera who's all about gaslighting and grooming and assault. Which not a lot of players are probably going to be into. Yeah, it's like, who is the target of the Galconer in your game? That's first question. A chimerical incubus who enjoys the she. The banshee, on the other hand, I think is much more useful. They're kind of yeah. not quite fey, not quite wraith, and they suck up glamour by keening. Yeah. I kept on getting these mixed up with the lost one for some reason. Ah. But I don't know why they were in the romance part of the other one. I, yeah, that was weird. I mean, you do you, but... <laughs> I guess there are those tropes of like you know, chasing the mysterious ghostly figure on the moor and wasting away slowly for love or whatever. But who wants to yeah. who wants to have that for their character? And then we get stuff on the Lost Ones, which is actually pretty useful, I think. I mean, there are, there are a bunch of systems that can be used. I don't know if I would use all of them, but things like if you're in a Lost One Freehold, you gain a point of glamour every hour. And Reverie is easier in a Lost One Freehold. Yep. 
but so is Bedlam. Right. I keep thinking, do they have these? I'll have to look up if these are in C20, because I'm like, how would I apply the C20 rules? And then we get Chapter 7, which are a who's who of the nobility of Concordia with some Drew Tucker art. I, I did not like the King David write-up in this. I didn't like, like most of the write-ups in this. So. Yes, but like the King David write-up is like, it feels like the author's like pet PC from a long-running game they ran or something. He's so awesome. He's more of an archetype than an actual person, King David. So, Yeah. We have his heir, Lenore. What's the point of her? Well, King David is, as of this book, unmarried and without children, so she's the heir. I guess they haven't necessarily figured out how bloodline inheritance might work yet, but... Yeah. She's like, would be like, what, 11 or 12 in this book? Uh, 10. Maybe yeah. 10? Yeah. 10 or 11. Like, I have kids. Setting aside she's a she, like, she's way too immature for a 10-year-old human. Maybe she'll wise up later. I don't know. Yeah. And this is more, all the pictures are unattractive pictures of she. <laughs> They're not exactly what you think of when you think of Appearance 7, I'll give you that. Yep. We have the various monarchs. I do agree Laurel's probably the coolest, but I also like Morgana for having Cult of Ecstasy friends that she hangs out with. Mm-hmm. She uses sensuality as a means of empowerment. Good for her. Yeah. And then we get some other nobles, including a number of commoner ones. Yep. Duke Topaz. And Duke Puffelt, the puka, who I think is my favorite. He's just this swashbuckling puka with a rapier wit... And he's of the golden sipple, so he's like rich? I suppose. Do, do, do you want to have a boardroom scene where you're playing Duke Pwifik? Always. Oh, Count Vogon. And Count Vogon. Yeah. This awful poetry. The one Ailil that we have so far. Yeah. And Count Kronos I also like as well. He's named Count Kronos because he uses Kronos. Mm-hmm. I, I like that the rule for naming your she characters is you don't have a rule for naming your she characters. Just pick something. Yeah. Just kind of pick whatever. And here's more about Astralan at the end. Yeah, I mean, overall, these are... I'm surprised more when the king's sister isn't in here, because she's she's kind of mm-hmm. a significant figure in the meta plot. Um, Duke Dre, the mustache-twirling, uber-seely villain willing to do anything to advance the cause of his house and court, is in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, overall, I think these are all... I mean, none of them have, like, stats or anything, but you could easily throw one of these into a game as, like, here's a she-luminary come to assign you a quest, or here's this captive you have to rescue you know yeah i like count flavius flavius <laughs> he's he's just um what oh what's the guy's name fabio yeah he's just fabio yeah yeah he is the romance novel cover model she because we needed one of those mm-hmm. and then character templates yeah we got a bunch of templates and i kind of liked the street night one i mean like i said earlier that's an archetype i think actually i kind of like for the she and also the Ennobled Puka Techno Girl in House Dougal. That one was... It's definitely showing it's not Kids Book She. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I like the Street Night, and it shows it's a freaking she without the title background. Imagine that. The real question is, what level of fey do you have to use to affect him? He doesn't have title. And yet he earned his knighthood, I guess through action rather than dreaming and forced whatever. Mm-hmm. And then we get an extended character sheet, which is pretty cool. Although it is a yeah. sort of noble inflected one because it has things like date ennobled, secret societies, and of course, romantic legacies. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the combat with the weapon range chart and clip. Always necessary. Thus endeth Nobles the Shining Host. What did you think overall, Josh? I overall 
say it's good that it exists. Same. Like it was an enjoyable read, especially when you when you think about it in the context and not how would I use it today. Although there is a lot of things that still I still do use today. Like I've realized both my own games and the like sort of changeling game that got me into changeling drew heavily from that. Mm. Um I feel like maybe we didn't need a bunch of other noble books, but I think we needed this one. I don't mind the other ones. I mean need mm-hmm. is a strong word. I wish that the other well, and that's the thing. Like I said, I don't think it was intended to be Kiss Book She but it kind of ended up that way, except the way it was structured. Yeah. It's like, well, if we have the Sealy Nobles book, obviously we also need to have the Unsealy Nobles book. And then you got all the house books because obviously we need to go into the houses. And so the She ended up getting like five long Kith books. And I wish any of the actual proper Kith books had gone into the same depth as this one did. Mm-hmm. I think a couple of them, like Kith Book Issue kind of approaches that. I mean, certainly longer than the others. But... I do think Kith Book Knocker should have had that uh, techno girl Puka in it, though. That's one of the example characters. Just Perhaps. the same character. Yeah. So there's, I mean, yeah, I agree. Like, it's, I'm glad it exists. It is, I do also like that, I think this is, again, something that Chris Howard does as a writer well. It has a lot of material that cuts across a wide variety of things for role-playing games. So there's really something for everyone. You have, like scene setting fiction you have hard mechanics you have societies you have templates you have new arts like there's just there's a new house there's a lot of something for everyone so it's very dense and even crossover stuff if you choose to go that road yep yeah you could totally use it in your pentex game if you're yeah. a freak legion completely so we have some listener questions from the discord let's do it yes Charles Siegel asks, based on how people talk about them, is there anything redeeming about the She, or are they simply tyrannical overlord villains of Changeling? Should I should I take this first and then you take it? <laughs> yeah. I I think yes, there is a lot actually that is potentially redeeming about the She. The trouble that I see is that the books very rarely and players even more rarely actually go into it or explore it. And I think this yeah. book does provide some of that other future books also do but it tends not to be the main focus and i think that's why i think that's why the she frustrate me as a kith overall and why i don't generally play them when i do play them i do try to play up those aspects that i find most interesting which tend not to be the things like courtly love things like that. yeah so. there's a few thoughts i have on that one like okay well how are you asking this question am i pretending i'm a commoner changeling in the setting and do i think the she are redeeming values or are you asking like i'm a storyteller for a changeling game do i am i glad the she are here yeah and if they are here are they more than just overlord villains yeah the first one i have trouble thinking of a lot that i would personally thank the she for but like as a storyteller i think they do help the game a lot yeah and i think it's it's not all just as foils pc she like they're good for unexamined privilege. And if you want to explore that as a player character, it really works well for the she. And they do fall into the role of villain very well, if you want them to. Yes. But they don't necessarily have to. And and you can have a whole bunch of she, and some of them are the villains, and some of them are the ally that you're not sure you want. And yeah, some, some of them are... The, are... Some are the mysterious figures. and Yeah, like... but you can also have like the red branch knight that actually is just very honorable. Right. But like any other Kith, there is a lot of diversity possible in them that I wish they went into more of. 
Yeah, it seems like there's two she you typically see. There's the asshole nobles, and there's the questing knight. Well, I think you see a couple more that are also... <laughs> but those are the ones I've seen in player characters a lot. Yeah. But... Well, we can... Yeah. Um, I'm going to hold my comment. Mm-hmm. Fayhammer 30 k fan asks, Is there any high fae slash elven trope you feel the she don't fulfill for better or for worse? There's a few. I don't know if it's if they're needed. There's no, like nature-loving she-of-the-woods kind of thing. And there's no, like... Because of the whole remembrance thing, they don't really do the ancient knowledge thing. So it's like the two... You can do Legolas from Tolkien, but you can't really do a lot of the other elves from Tolkien very well, necessarily. Like You can do the... I guess the world is dying and they're they're sad about it, but a lot of the other stuff from Tolkien elves you don't really have. And, you know, none of them also work in Santa's shop. So, I mean, that's another... Well, yes. Well, those aren't high elves. Yes. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, you have sort of these... You don't get a lot of the sort of mysteriously aloof, almost angelic. To play off your comment, I think it's hard to have a Galadriel in Mm -hmm. in the full, mysterious, prophetess kind of sense, I think. Like, you can have a crystal circle sorceress of House Elanad who... But she wouldn't be that same sort of mysterious light in the dark figure secluded away. Galadriel will make a much better lost one than a she. Mm-hmm. And a lost one doesn't necessarily have to be a she. So it's less about the kith and more about the archetype. So in that sense, mm-hmm. even though I associate that archetype with high elves because of Tolkien primarily, I don't think it's necessarily embedded into what makes the she. Their nobility is much more important than their etherealness. Mm-hmm. We answered the next one, so then there's another one. A storyteller asks, Oh yeah, and what are the writers smoking when they wrote romantic re- legacies? No idea, but I'd like to know. Yeah. I think it was something that made them lose attention, because I, I just... You can definitely question whether or not they should have them at all, but I really don't think they were properly fleshed out either. I think they rolled up a copy of the story of Lancelot and Guinevere and shredded it and put it into a joint of some kind. That might be what Yes. It must have been potent stuff. It's just, that's, you know. And then Razkabuz asks, does the material stand up or is compatible with C20 as well as our opinions regarding any changes? Some of it, a lot of it does. I think there are a lot of things in here that were in C20, that are still in C20 mm-hmm. and have been addressed both, especially if we include the player's guide and some of the things that cut out like romantic legacies, it's probably good they didn't bring them forward. Yes. It can be handy that she times stuff if you want to bring that in, that's doable into C20. That's not really in C20. And everything else, I don't think you... I'm not sure if there's anything else you really need to bring in. It's hard for me to tell because this book, plus all the books that relied on it later, including the second edition core book, I have trouble remembering what's hmm. still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus isn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it... it it did a lot to cement the whole noble's structure of changeling. Yeah. I think if you want to run a political game, it is still useful and compatible. And yes. if you really want to run a courtly love game or a sexy times game, and you want the romantic legacies, there they are. But yeah, Kronos has been updated. Dreamcraft has been obviated. The secondary yeah. abilities, you don't really need them. And the backgrounds have The description of, been, of the dreaming. The description of the dreaming is helpful, but... 
other books kind of supersede it. It's there. It's in every other core book right. after this book. So and, and other books do it better. So yeah, it's a very important book. There is still some useful stuff, but it's definitely way less useful than it would have been when it came out. It's the closest you'll get to the perspective of the she removed from specific house, I think. This and the Shadow mm -hmm. Court both. Very Seely sheep, I guess. Yeah. Well, the Shadow Court for Unseely and this one for Seely. Yeah. But even Shadow Court's not all she. That's so. true. Okay. So I think that uh, wraps up this book here. Any final thoughts? I'm, I don't regret owning it. Me neither. I, I, it's part of my treasured collection. I will not get rid of it. Treasure uh, collection with a capital tr. Yes. Uh, yeah. You should see what uh, my Riffs books do in terms of arts. Mm -hmm. um, so once again, this is Changeling the Podcast. Uh, your host, Josh, and Puka as well. You can follow us on our Discord. What's the Discord? Oh, it's got a long and windy link. but Not Discord. Uh, yeah, sorry, even Discord. Sorry, what's the Twitter? Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, Twitter is ChangelingCast. The website yeah. is changelingthepodcast.com. And which has the link to our discord which has so the link to our discord we also have a facebook page if you want to check that out at, on facebook for changeling the podcast come say hi you'll and, love our food yes and we're on uh, a whole bunch of different podcast platforms if there's a podcast platform you'd want to add contact us and we'll uh look into it so yeah uh don't let those commoners stop you from your divine right of kings um i'll stop whatever divine rate of kings i feel like